It is no secret that social determinants of health are a big problem in our system, in our healthcare system today. It is front and center in many news outlets, in a lot of publications that we read about, and we always look at the side of the needs, right? Like what are the needs in the community? But there's very little that gets discussed around how we can finance this as a system. What are creative ways that we might find the resources in the system to address the social determinants of health? And this is the topic that we are discussing today with our guest, John Gorman. Before we dive right into the topic, let me introduce to you John Gorman. John is the founder and chairman of Nightingale Partners, that is a qualified Opportunity Zone fund investing in addressing the social determinants of health. And as you'll see, he also has a quite an entrepreneurial background of sorts because prior to this, John was also the founder and CEO of Gorman Health Group, which at the time was the industry's leading consulting practice, um, which spawned a dozen of entrepreneurial ventures in government health programs. Prior to founding this group, John served as assistant to the director of healthcare financing administrations. Office of Managed Care, um, which used to be HCFA, now CMS, um, and John's career in Washington began as the press secretary and staff director of the U.S. representative John Conyers Jr. from his hometown of Detroit. And without further ado, here is the interview. You're listening to Healthcare Focus, and I'm your host, Karina Paraskiv. Healthcare Focus is the podcast where we follow healthcare news and industry research so you don't have to. When you first hear about the business model behind uh, the, the initiative that John Gorman is, is talking about, you might be tempted to think it's only about the data. And in a certain way, you know, data has a very important place there. I mean, if you go down and talk to any manager in an insurance company, she'll know. But if you talk to the CEO, chances are they will just be taking a, a wild-ass guess about which populations need the help. So we started first with developing a proprietary technology to do analytics on these populations so that we can really very pointedly target who are the folks who need the help the most. So we, uh, we monitor about 2,000 different public data sources And now with COVID, uh, we even built a module for uh, the coronavirus so that we can uh, identify hotspots uh, where uh, virus outbreaks are likely to occur and which are the populations, neighborhoods, and even households that are most vulnerable uh, to this virus and that need the most help to be able to shelter in place uh, or recoup at home like we all need us to do. Um, so we start there, uh, we call the insurance companies claims data, especially their pharmacy data, the lab and radiology data, and we drop on the top of this thing. And it produces a hotspotting analysis that points exactly to uh, which census tracts, which households, which neighborhoods uh, need the help the most, and what the nature of that need is. Like, is this neighborhood you know, really housing insecure? Is this patient food insecure? Um, does she live alone? 
Uh, does she live in a third floor walk up and she has a disability and hasn't been able to leave her apartment for a year? Um, all of these things factor in hugely to what these folks will cost our healthcare system. And so we want to ensure that we're directing our investments to the folks who need the help the most and who, frankly, we can do the most to help. All right, so data is definitely a big part of the equation. This is how you know that what you're investing in um, gives you a positive return. It's by selecting projects that really can benefit, that really will have uh, greater health outcomes for all the people involved. This is why the data is so important. But the data isn't everything. The other part of this is having the right players at the table, getting the stakeholders who in, in a normal context do not necessarily speak to each other, do not know each other, but actually have very complementary needs um, and, and abilities, capabilities, and access to resources. If you get those people around the table and you can figure out the optimal match, then you've got a great project on your hands. We're kind of a weird beast, Karina, in that uh, we're the only opportunity zone fund uh, that's making investments in healthcare right now, and certainly the only one that's doing it in social determinants of health. And the opportunity zone program uh, really kind of came out of uh, Trump's big tax giveaway bill a couple of years ago. And this was actually Cory Booker's program that was designed to encourage investment in real estate in really disadvantaged communities like Newark, where Booker uh, lives. So uh, what it basically did was it designated about 9,000 opportunity zones across the country that are all economically disadvantaged and medically underserved. And it says if you invest money in these communities and you leave it in for at least 10 years, then not only is your initial investment tax-free, but all the proceeds that you make on that investment are tax-free. And so, as you can imagine, that was like catnip to Republican billionaires. And um, it unleashed over $6 trillion in available capital. Um, and so, you know, I was sitting around retired Uh, a year ago. And then in April of 2019, the IRS issues the final rules for the Opportunity Zone program. And they really dramatically changed it from just a purely real estate investment play. Now it says that you can use this capital for, uh, for leases, not just purchasing real estate, but leasing it for working capital and uh, to meet the business requirements of a new startup in one of these opportunity zones. So that opened the door to us using what had previously been a real estate tax shelter to now make big investments in social determinant of health intervention. So we went after that like a dog on a bone. And, uh, you know, we just, we haven't stopped ever since we opened our doors in January. It's just been crazy. When the pandemic hit and of course laid bare, uh, you know, how, Uh, pervasively uh, unequal things are in the United States uh, and that these types of investments were needed more than ever, uh, man, that only poured fuel on our fire here. And we've been, uh, we've been very busy as a result. And how, how do you actually articulate? Does that help? 
yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> Absolutely. How do you actually articulate? Because you're saying it's it's an opportunity to make an investment. You guys are definitely, it does pay off. It's something that's not just uh, for the good cause, but you can actually build a, a business around that. How do you show Absolutely. the value uh, in terms of ROI? Because I'm thinking to track something, um, you know, from a data perspective and to not just have a correlation, but to show that really that specific action within a system that's doing so many things did have a repercussion. How can you, um, how do you deal with collecting that data and, and sort of showing that um, that result that's really attributable to your actions? We like to think that our superpower, Karina, is our ability to translate an intervention like housing homeless patients or feeding uh, folks who are hungry or providing medically appropriate meals for diabetics. All the research is pretty conclusive about what you can literally take to the bank in terms of what these interventions produce in healthcare saving. Um, and that's, you know, really kind of the, the core of our argument with insurers, especially with actuaries, who are the ones who really run these insurance companies, Karina. I mean, it's not the charismatic CEOs out there in front of the, the mics. The person who really runs an insurance company in the United States is the chief actuary. And nothing gets offered by an insurance company unless um, the chief actuary says, yes, we're going to do this. Uh, and so it's just been convinced, pointy head, you know, green eye shade actuary types that these are not experimental uh, initiatives or interactions or interventions at all, that these are very well established in the research to the extent that we can literally take it to the bank in our financial projection. So we have literally a whole team at Nightingale that does nothing but ascribe savings from these types of interventions to enrolled population and to be able to project that forward in an investor prospectus. So, you know, uh, their whole, that whole team takes all this crazy stuff in my head and in Pam Taylor's head, she's our chief innovation officer. She's the architect. And so when a client engages us, we run all their data, we see what all the problems are, and then Pam swoops in and she says, okay, what we're going to do over here in this neighborhood where we have serious food insecurity issues is ABC. And over here, we've got housing issues as well as, uh, you know, clearly a huge cluster uh unmanaged diabetes and so we're going to do uh, C, D and E over here and then uh, our finance team will then look at all of those patients, we'll pull up all of their data on their claims experience and then exploit that in the, if we do this then we can reliably expect to generate Y in savings. So let me just give you one example that's one of our favorite, Karina. A couple of years ago Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania, one of the greatest rural healthcare systems that, that we have in the U.S., um, found that they were spending $300,000 per patient per year on their uncontrolled diabetics. And so they started a medically appropriate meal delivery service for these folks. And within 14 months, dropped that cost to $48,000 per patient per year. So net of the cost 
of meal preparation, packaging, and delivery, they saved $192,000 per patient per year on their uncontrolled diabetics just by feeding people. Okay, it costs not even 25 bucks to provide these meals per patient per week. And that's what they got in terms of saving. So for us as an investor, we're looking at that going, wow, isn't that beautiful? Look at what good they did. And by the way, they got a 35X ROI on that investment and take that to the bank. So we have yet to produce a prospectus that produces less than a 27% internal rate of return. And the icing on the cake, Karina, is that the Opportunity Zone tax shelter provides somewhere between 315 and 350 basis points additional margin to that thanks to the tax shelter. So in effect, what we're doing here is we hacked a Republican billionaire real estate shelter to provide better health care for black and brown people. And that's what warms my heart every day when I get out of bed. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's very. Interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very interesting, and it's it's uh, okay. impressive to see the the kind of results you get. Um, I guess I would have one last question just to uh, wrap things up a little bit, which would be, um, when we're looking at this model, it makes so much sense. What do you? Why do you think insurances haven't caught up to that beforehand? Like, why did it take a player to kind of come into the ecosystem and take that chunk of the work? Well, I think. The, the realization that social determinants drive this much in healthcare expenses is a relatively new concept to most executives in the insurance industry. I mean, certainly public health and, um, uh, and population health researchers have known this for some time. But I don't think a lot of insurance executives, uh, you know, had this sort of slap the forehead moment uh, until relatively recently. And once they figured it out, it's what really spurred this arms race that we see going on in the industry right now around social determinants. You know, you see companies like United Healthcare and Kaiser uh, investing $400 million a year in better social determinants and that this is now driving uh, transactions among insurers like uh, we're seeing with the recent um, uh, Centene and Wellcare transaction, and that we're seeing with the the Molina Magellan transaction as well. I mean, these these companies aren't just acquiring uh, competitors to get bigger; they're acquiring them because they have better capability than they have in house around addressing social determinants of health. And you know, I think it really took the whole disease management industry and approach to crash and burn in the in the 90s and 2000s because you know i think everybody realized we can't just manage diseases you can't just manage somebody's uncontrolled diabetes unless you're really looking at the neighborhood they live in and the fact that mrs ramirez lives in a food desert and the only place she's got to go and buy food is the local bodega down the street that uh you know she goes and eats a, a can of condensed soup off its shelves uh, is probably going to land her in the hospital by the, the afternoon because working heart failure. On. So do you have to uh, take a, a much more holistic view of these patients in order to see that where they live, who they live with, what they eat, what they breathe, what they uh, drink is uh, a much bigger factor in what they're going to cost the health system than anything else. I mean, your zip code 
has a hell of a lot more to do with what you're going to cost the healthcare system than your even your genetic code does. So um, I think that's been a relatively recent uh, awakening there. But now that they've figured it out, they're throwing money at this faster than anything else in the industry right now. And and that's where we come in. I mean, our whole uh, purpose for being was to be able to bring other people's money to insurers to invest in this stuff. And in effect, to de-risk the, the offering of these types of benefits and services by bringing external third-party capital to the dance to help pay for it. And that, I think, is, is really resonating with folks in the industry just by, you know, the, the size of our pipeline six months into this thing is, uh, you know, it's pretty staggering. And that these are, a lot of these are big, big projects. And, and those are the ones that we like because the more folks that we can help through these types of investments, actually, the better the business is. And the more we save, the more the insurer we're partnering with saves, uh, the more return our investors make, and the more people we can serve uh, through these types of innovative investments. I imagine because of the, the, the type of work you do, you have to pick each uh, client for a geographic region, and you probably cannot pick two competitors, so to speak, in the same territory, right? Well, it's interesting you say that because we, we actually have a couple of projects going that are actually kind of like all payer initiatives. And we have several payers that are working with us um, to, to move the intervention forward because it benefits all of them. Um, we're doing uh, a major uh, island-wide food security initiative in Puerto Rico right now that has all of the major payers at the table. Uh, we're doing... Uh, a really, really cool project in Baton Rouge, where we're, uh, Louisiana, where we're converting uh, an abandoned football stadium into an integrated community health pavilion in West Baton Rouge, which is just really one of the worst uh, urban medically underserved areas in the country. And we're going to turn this old football stadium into this giant integrated community health pavilion that will have primary care as its tent pole, but then a community pharmacy and an adult and child daycare center and a, a green grocery uh, and a food bank and a big commercial kitchen so that we can start doing meal deliveries. And, um, and we've got all three of the major Medicaid plans in Baton Rouge at the table. And in fact, uh, one of them is, is going to be a, a big lender to us. They're basically going to lend us capital at 2%. Uh, to convert the stadium into this pavilion. So um, it's interesting that it really takes uh, abject poverty to get insurers to see collective good in these types of uh, programs. But there are plenty of examples out there where it makes sense for uh, all of the insurers in the region to come together to address this stuff because, you know, poverty like, like a virus, it doesn't know zip code tracks or county borders or state borders even i mean it, it it goes everywhere and generally you know poor people live in in communities that are easily identifiable and that which health insurers typically end up having to share the burden of so um we see plenty of examples where uh we're, we're getting these guys who generally are like the hatfields and mccoys and would like to cut each other's throats out uh, to actually come together and say, this makes sense for all of us to work together on this. 
that, that's a question I've reflected a lot um, coming from different systems that were single-payer systems before. It, I've seen that a lot of the public health initiatives are very aligned in a business sense with healthcare delivery. And in, in a system like this one that's very fragmented, that's not always the case. So it's very um, fascinating to me to see people who have that innovative foresight of how do we bring people together? How do we have maybe collaboration across sectors or, or even competitors that typically didn't do things together? So. Very nice model there. Well, it's interesting because you also really see, you also really see it coming up, Karina, from the provider groups, especially capitated physician groups in particular. When they hear about the stuff that we're sinking money into, they start turning cartwheels because if you're at risk as a provider, as a medical group, as a health system, and you share the risk, then you have all the same incentives that the insurer does. But I've always found that physician groups that are capitated and therefore pretty sophisticated by definition, um, they get this stuff more than anybody. And they, uh, they get really excited when they see uh, these types of uh, probes because, um, I'm sorry about that. Did I lose you there, Karina? No, no, no. Can you hear me? I'm just off because the, the sound sometimes has glitches, so I think. You there? Oh, okay. Sorry. You're good. Yeah, my apologies. Somebody called in on my other line there. Um, you know, then the providers really get this. And because they're so much closer to the patients, you know, having downstream physicians at the table when we analyze, then design build and then begin to execute on these interventions uh having the buy-in and participation of those downstream providers is really the the key to making it all work mm -hmm. is is the you know this element of working with different groups and different geographies is, is interesting to me because I'm, I'm wondering the solution you have can be standardized to some extent but I imagine when you were speaking about Baton Rouge and, and different areas that you're working with, Puerto Rico, it's not the same, right, to be in Baton Rouge or Puerto Rico than to be in New York City. Um, how do you, how does your team sort of adapt and, and find creative solutions that really match that specific community? Or is it a broad set of principles that if you go in any community, they will work? That's a great, great question. And the answer really is, is all of the above. Um, you know, if you've seen one of these projects that we work on, Karina, you've seen one of these projects because every single initiative that we're doing is just, you know, the circumstances on the ground are just dramatically different. I mean, what you see in West Baton Rouge is utterly different than what we see in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, and so every one of these projects ends up being uh, uniquely tailored to the community that we're trying to intervene with. And, um, but having said that, you know, there are a lot of, uh, all of these interventions typically have, uh, you know, as we've been talking about, bankable results that are predictable and that, um, you know, we, we know we can count on. So there, there are interventions that are very similar from geography to geography, like say feeding for seniors. Um, but the way in which you go about doing it can be completely different. You know, the way that we do a food security initiative in Louisiana 
and man, the Louisianans love their food, Karina. And uh, there's, you know, there's some pretty tight guardrails for what you can do around food insecurity and nutrition in a place like Louisiana that takes its food so seriously. And so the way that we do those interventions in Louisiana around food security would be very different than the way that we would do them in Puerto Rico. And every one of these interventions has to recognize the unique culture and be competent in that culture if you want them to be successful. Um, you know, we're working on an initiative in Puerto Rico that we call Proyecto Placitas, uh, because uh, what we're doing is going to revitalize all the, uh, the little town squares, the little town plazas, or in Spanish we say placitas, across the island that were basically wrecked during Hurricane Maria and never really recovered. But those placitas are the centerpiece of Puerto Rican culture and especially nightlife, and especially for where seniors in Puerto Rico go um, to congregate and to be social. So uh, the initiative there is going to be to revitalize uh, the placitas across the island to be miniature healthcare campuses, kind of like what we're doing in West Baton Rouge, but on a much smaller scale and recognizing that, you know, these, uh, these little town plazas are the fixture of Puerto Rican uh, social life and that we'll be able to reach far more people by being culturally competent like that in the types of interventions that we do. Mm -hmm. does, does that make sense? So even though we're, we may be doing the same thing as a type of intervention between Puerto Rico and Louisiana, the way in which you design and execute on those interventions has to be uniquely tailored to what's going on in that neighborhood that you're trying to intervene with. So we do have some general principles around the types of stuff that we get into. Um, generally, you know, guidance around the returns that we'll generate. Like we don't, we don't jump into projects. We know we can't deliver at least a 27% internal rate of return for. Um, but then, you know, the way in which we're going to execute on that intervention is going to be utterly tailored to uh, the unique culture of uh, that community we're going into. And the, the way I see you, you're almost a, a matchmaker in a sense, because you see the opportunities in a community, you see the yes. that have the ability to support it, you see that the distribution and the, the ones who can actually implement this. Um, how do you find yep. those uh, to be culturally sensitive, like you mentioned, or, or to have the specificity? I imagine you do need people on the ground, people who might be local. You probably have to foster partnerships beyond just the core team that you have. How do you go about finding the right people who really can help that ecosystem? You, you really just got to dig in and get to know the neighborhood that you're going into. I mean, we are not in this, Karina, to reinvent the wheel in these underserved communities. We are coming in first to leverage existing community-based organizations that are already there doing this type of work. And then our interest is in helping them scale up to do more of these types of services at scale and to, you know, in effect, move them from what is very often, um, which is very often a, um, um, 
forgive me, Karina, I just lost my train of thought there. A call just came in and uh, I was, uh, I, uh, I'm not sure if I lost my, uh, my audio with you. Um, so that, the, okay. Um, the wheel. you know, so that our interest is in helping meals on wheels of Baton Rouge or Mrs. Ramirez and her six little church lady friends in Puerto Rico down in the basement of a church preparing meals for delivery for a hundred people the next day. I want to get Mrs. Ramirez and her church lady friends ready to do a thousand meals a day, 10,000 meals a day. And that means for a lot of these community-based organizations and these social service agencies that the first thing you got to do is to help them move away from grants and philanthropy and get them moving toward a value-based contract where we can pay them more if they deliver a really high-performing uh, service. So first, you know, we want to build on what's already there in that community and to help those folks do it bigger, better, and faster uh, at scale. And where those services don't exist, then we go and invest in them, design in them, uh, and then build them and execute them to the extent that we have to. I mean, we have projects where, you know, we uh, we are basically just writing a check to the insurer to offer a service. And in some cases, they're going to completely execute uh, that intervention themselves. But on the other spectrum, we've got those where we need to be the turnkey and we actually end up these interventions and on them ourselves and, and we do that as well. So, um, you know, you can never know enough about these communities, Karina, and that's why, you know, every single engagement we get into always has to start with data and data and more data so that we really do understand what's going on, not just in these communities, but all the way down to individual households. Like we need to know, uh, Mrs. Ramirez, you know, is uh, what are her healthcare conditions? But then also, does she live alone? Uh, is she food insecure? Uh, is she having difficulty paying her rent in this environment? Uh, and things of that sort that have huge impacts on her health and on her healthcare costs. I, I will get back on that idea that you just mentioned that I think was really interesting. A lot of the um you know, community that does good is not often um, thinking in terms of business terms. They do rely on grants, they do great work, but it's it's sort of this um, non-mainstream system that's sponsoring them. I think it's really interesting to see that you could take something like that and make it, you know, viable and turn this into a business model that could be sustainable and that works in a for-profit um, sector in the end. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, because of the nature of the work that we do, there is a whole lot of economic development and, and workforce uh, development that, that goes into a lot of these projects. I mean, whenever you're go going into an underserved community, you know, if you really want to affect change, you have to bring economic opportunity to them as well as better health care. And, um, you know, very often a lot of the work that we do uh, creates a lot of jobs. I mean, there's just wonderful opportunities in dealing with food insecurity in creating uh, food preparation and delivery uh, jobs. Um, that whenever 
we do any intervention, the linchpin of that intervention, Karina, is what we call community health workers. Or in Puerto Rico, we call them pro, uh, promotores, or the promoters of good community health. And these folks are basically social workers without the license that live in these underserved communities and know them intimately. And with just a little bit of training can serve as incredibly helpful navigators through the healthcare system for uh, frail elders and uh, really uh, vulnerable, low-income people. So community health workers are, you know, a fixture of every project that we do, but they, you know, we create a lot of jobs in doing that, uh, especially for a low-skill and low-educational attainment population that we go into. I mean, often where you see a food desert, there are also pharmacy deserts. And so... Often community pharmacy is a big feature of a lot of our interventions. And we love to create residency sites for uh, pharmacy assistance and training. And we put a, a lot of emphasis around partnering with uh, HBCUs or historically black colleges and universities, uh, especially if they've got a school of pharmacy. We bring them to the table very early on in our planning process to ensure that uh, you know these will be residency sites for pharmacists as well um you know a lot of the stuff that we do is all about trying to help people remain independent in their homes safely for longer so that creates a lot of jobs around home modifications and installing ramps and bumpers and railings and and doing pest control i mean that to be honest that's one of the most uh, exciting innovations that I've seen in insurance benefits design in the last couple of years has been how some plans out there like Anthem are now providing a $500 annual allowance for pest control and for home modifications. And I think that's brilliant, but it also creates a lot of jobs if you're thoughtful about how you go about addressing. It. So, you know, all of our work has to be against the backdrop of how do we also improve the economic uh, fortunes of this community that we're going into. Because at the end of the day, like we said at the top, Karina, social determinants are just four fancy words for poverty. And one of the best things that we can do to improve community health is just to bring more economic opportunity to these areas as well. Fantastic. Um, perhaps as a last point here, so you're bringing capital, you're bringing jobs. Do you also bring data or knowledge to a community? Is that part of what you bring when you when you come in and, and help? Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and community health workers are the promotores, as we said earlier. You know, they work best when they're armed with as much information as they can get their little hands on uh, about not just the patient they're sitting across the kitchen table from, but um, but that household, that building, uh, and that neighborhood and that community. So all of that initial data analysis that we do at the outset of all these engagements then has to get into the hands of the end users so that they can do their jobs better. So we push that data out to the community health workers in that community, that we push it out to uh, the health plans um, primary care physicians so that they have a more holistic picture of what's going on uh, with their patients. And, um, you know, very often the stuff that people get most excited about isn't even the money that we're bringing to this dance. 
but the information that enables them to do their jobs better, faster, uh, more meaningfully, that is, you know, targeting it to the people who need the help the most. And to make those interventions <clears throat> a lot more cost effective than uh, what they've been doing uh, up until that point. And so, yeah, we're, we're big data nerds uh, at Nightingale. And we, you know, we really try to bring that stuff to everything we do, especially to the end users who need that information the most. Do you think in the, the future, I know this is probably not in the scope now, but do you think in the future, Epic and Cerner, because they're acting as um, essentially data collection points, do you think they could help gather more information on the social determinants of health, on the reality that patients face and really be able to link it to conditions in a way that maybe insurances can't always tap into? Yes, uh, absolutely. And I think it was probably the reason all scripts literally hunted me down to join their podcast last week to talk about it. I mean, I think the next big innovation that we're going to see around patient information and uh, and information sharing is going to be what we like to refer to as uh, an electronic social record that would cover all of the non-clinical needs and services a patient uh, may have and that it sits on top of and is really kind of agnostic to which EMR system those providers may be using, whether it's Epic, Cerner, Allscripts, you know, or one of 20 other companies. You want to be agnostic to what the underlying EMR system is and just have the social information sitting on top of it. So a doctor can see, oh, I see Mrs. Ramirez got 15 uh, diabetic meals delivered to her this week. Uh, we gave her two uh, trips to uh, the nephrologist and to her pulmonologist this week. Uh, we see that her community health worker was there just today uh, checking on her blood sugar and her weight, making sure she's taking her insulin right. And all of that stuff um, you know, sits right there on top of the EMR and gives the provider a much more holistic, you know, whole person view of what's going on with that patient. And I think ultimately that's where a lot of this stuff has to go. I mean, if this is <clears throat> information that is driving 60 to 80% of healthcare expenditures, you wanna get that information in the hands of everybody who's putting their hands on that patient. And that has an ability to uh, improve the quality of care and frankly, the site of care uh, so that it's more appropriate for that patient and more cost-effective as a result. It's a beautiful uh, vision for the future. <laughs> All right, Thank you. Well, well, that, uh, that wraps up the, the interview for today. Um, it was extremely oh, interesting and fascinating to hear uh, both the business and, and how you're proceeding, but also the, the view that you have in the vision of, of how the system can really step into all these problems and, and turn them into opportunities. So thank you very much for your time today. It was a great pleasure, Karina. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, we have so many ideas on new topics that we want to research and look into for our next episodes. However, who better to hear and see interesting, innovative topics in healthcare than you right on the field? If there is anything that catches your attention and things that you think are worthwhile digging into a little bit more, make sure to reach us at healthcarefocus.org. Use the contact form.
What an amazing show we were able to dive into social determinants of health on a completely new um, lens that we never look at, which is the business side of it. How do we actually find the money in the system to solve poverty? Very interesting. We are including a couple of um, pointers and links down in the uh, show notes if you want to check that out. Um, we're also including um, John Gorman's website if you want to perhaps reach out to him. Um, next up, we are very excited to bring you, um, there's a lot coming up actually, but right next is going to be, is it geriatrics? Is that how we might call it? So <laughs> looking at the aging population, we're looking at it from a policy standpoint, we're actually going to go into um, a center that does activities with them, art programs every day. Um, going to see more the human side and a little bit further down the line we're going to also dive into technologies that touch on that so that's all coming up next on healthcare focus if you think others just like you might enjoy this podcast help us spread the word give us a quick rating write us a review or just share with a friend In a few moments, I'm going to introduce to you our guest speaker, John Gorman. And before I do that, I'm going to set the stage so that we understand exactly um, why we're having this discussion. Um, so we've talked a lot about social determinants of health. It is something that is front and center in a lot of you know, news outlets uh, in, in the healthcare industry in general. I think there's a great awareness, greater and greater, about the need. But what we often don't hear so much about are what are all the different possibilities to solve that problem. And there are already, like, there's there's a lot of things going on already on the ground, which are quite astonishing. We spoke last year, so the very first episode, actually, of Healthcare Focus, I believe, was about Kaiser Permanente investing in um, lower-income housing, which is something that you might think, well, that's not really an insurance's place to do or a health system's place to do. Um, and, and so that, in a sense, was the first move that we, we would see, ha, huh, something interesting is going on there because they are tackling it because it is part of, of health in one way. Um, and then if I look at other models last year, for instance, um, I was working on a project, so we we saw how hospitals were welcoming patients and when they would identify that they were highly at risk and um, had, had needs, basically, um, could be for diapers, for uh, you know mental health counseling, for transportation, anything that falls into that realm um, of social determinants of health, they would get connected to community organizations and partners that could take on that role. And that was interesting because a hospital often does not have the, the built-in capability to do all of these tasks or all of these um, support programs, but they are able to connect people to community organizations that are really well-equipped and um, have the resources to tackle that. So that was also a great initiative. And now we're entering a third model um, that I've, I've seen now in social determinants of health. And this is what John Gorman is about to share with us. In that model, it's a little bit more entrepreneurial. It's a little bit more um, ecosystem oriented. It's, it's very sustainable too in, in the longer term and in, in the way that it's um, being implemented. And so it's it's completely at a different level, I guess, because it's a very macro type of activity, but it's um, it's also very clever because it found an efficiency in the system, essentially, and it found out how to tap into that. Um, and the inefficiency was that there are investors out there that do have the funds and are interested in investing in the community and in the health um, of people in the community. 
but they are not always able to be matched to the kind of initiatives that could benefit from it. So this is um, an investment fund that basically comes in as the matchmaker. They they find interesting um, needs in the community. They find investors that are interested in um, in, in providing the, the funds for this. And they, um, you know, at different degrees, and, and we'll hear a little bit about that, uh, help implement these so sometimes it's just matchmaking sometimes it's actually um, in, in the running things as well and the, the great thing about this model is that it does not just help um, alleviate the problem specifically at that point in time but it does generate jobs in a community um, it generates access to data longitudinal data that um, they could keep um, so there's a lot of benefits that uh, come with this kind of intervention. So without further ado, let us introduce our guest and uh, dive right in. Before we dive right into the topic, let me introduce to you John Gorman. John is the founder and chairman of Nightingale Partners, that is a qualified opportunity zone fund investing in addressing the social determinants of health. And as you'll see, he also has a quite an entrepreneurial background of sorts because prior to this, John was also the founder and CEO of Gorman Health Group, which at the time was the industry's leading consulting practice, um, which spawned a dozen of entrepreneurial ventures in government health programs. Prior to founding this group, John served as assistant to the director of healthcare financing administrations Office of Managed Care, um, which used to be HCFA, now CMS, um, and John's career in Washington began as the press secretary and staff director of the U.S. representative John Conyers Jr. from his hometown of Detroit. And without further ado, here is the interview. <laughs> 